Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. It is cold. I'm used to preaching in Texas when, and sweating a lot. This is kind of nice. Um, well, welcome again. It's good to have you all here this morning. Uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series uh, going through the life of Moses as we find it in the book of Exodus, uh, sort of Moses' autobiography, since he's the author of these books, these first five books of the Bible. And last week, we left Moses in the land of Midian. Uh, he had fled there under uh, the, the Pharaoh in Egypt. Uh, was, he was wanted for murder. And so he fled there where he uh, was married and uh, is now working as a shepherd. But between chapters 2 and 3, 40 years have passed. And Moses is now 80 years old. And I imagine like many of us would be doing at 80 years old, Moses is thinking, all right, it's time to start settling down, maybe sell the... Uh, shepherding business uh, to my kids, turn it over to them, and uh, retire for a little while. But God has other plans for Moses, as we'll see, as he calls him into his service to be the deliverer of Israel in this passage. And so one of the big questions I want us to ask this morning as we look at this passage is, what do we need to know about God in order to follow him faithfully? What do we need to know about God in order to follow him faithfully? Uh, That's what he wants to communicate to Moses in this passage, and that's that's a big question I want us to ask this morning. So I invite you to stand, please, as we read from Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read just the first 14 verses for us. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hizzites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. 
When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that is sure and true, and we pray that you would speak to us through it and that you would change us through it. Communicate yourself to us. Show us who you are so that we might know you more deeply. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. As a kid who grew up in the 90s, uh, one of my favorite movies came out in 1999 when I was 19 was The Matrix. Um, The Matrix, if you've seen it or one of its later reprisals that have come out in the last few years, you know it's a movie where you find out that the world as we know it is not real. And the human race is enslaved to this computer-generated matrix uh, that uh, keeps people enslaved and, 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 and there's no uh, easy escape from it. But this group of rebels has broken free from the matrix and they've identified one person to be their savior, Neo who, uh, played by Keanu Reeves, which uh, was a role that was like made for Keanu Reeves, right? Keanu Reeves at his best. Uh, Neo, the, uh, the, the savior, they, they go to find Neo, but there, there's one problem. He doesn't know anything about anything. He doesn't know that the Matrix exists. He doesn't know how to get out of it. He doesn't know all the skills he's going to need to help these people. And so the, the, over the course of the movie, these people have to train him to be the savior that they need him to be. And so he learns to jump from one skyscraper to another or to dodge bullets and uh, bend spoons with his mind and all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, He needed to be trained in order to fit the role that was designed for him. Well, here in Exodus 3, God takes Moses through a similar process. God has identified Moses as the one whom he is going to send into Egypt to deliver his people out of slavery and oppression. But Moses doesn't really know who God is. He spent 80 years of his life, uh, 40 years in Egypt and now 40 years in in Midian, and uh, he doesn't know God. And the mission that he's about to go uh, accomplish is not Moses' mission. It's God's. And everything that he's going to do over the next several chapters is he's going to do under the authority of God. And so in order for him to fit that role, in order for him to do that in the way that God's designed it, he needs to know who he's serving. He needs to know the kind of God that he is called to serve. And when I say he needs to know God, I don't mean that Moses simply needs to understand him mentally as if he could answer a bunch of questions on a test that God gives him before he goes. He needs to know God with the kind of knowledge that would give him the reverence and love for God that would transform his life, to make him into a willing servant who will serve God faithfully. And what, this, what I want to do this morning is I want us to see three things that God communicates about himself to Moses. Three things that, that you need to know about God in order to follow him faithfully. And maybe you've been following him faithfully for your whole life. And you, you know these things. These are familiar things to you. 
But maybe you haven't. Maybe you're new to Christianity and maybe you're exploring the Christian faith. And so you're asking the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What do I need to know about God in order to follow him and be one of his disciples? Well, I want you to see three things in this passage that God shows Moses in order to follow him faithfully and to see that for us as well. The first thing I want you to see is that in order to follow God faithfully, you need to know the holiness of God. You need to know the holiness of God. So Moses, over the course of the last chapter, has become a shepherd. And he lives in Midian, which is on the the east side of the Sinai Peninsula. So that triangle that comes down between modern-day Egypt and modern-day Saudi Arabia. And uh, he's, uh, he lives there, and he takes his flock one day to the west side of Midian, so kind of in the middle of that triangle, to a place called Horeb. Horeb is another name in the Bible for Sinai. It's a name that you're probably familiar with if you know the Bible from Mount Sinai. Uh, and so Moses uh, comes into uh, contact with, he sees off on the horizon this bush that's on fire. You've seen the old Charlton Heston Ten Commandments movie. You've seen the, the great CGI effects from the, from the 1950s that, that, uh, with this bush burning. Well, uh, it was a real fire on a real bush, and uh, so he sees it and he pulls aside. But what's the first thing that God says to him as he speaks out of this bush? Moses, come here. I want to show you something. No. He says, Moses, Moses, do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet because the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. Now Moses had likely been through that neighborhood before and so there was nothing particularly special or unique about that piece of real estate. But now things were different because God was there. A holy God was there. Now that place is holy. And so what uh, he's telling Moses uh, is, is, is that this is, this is different now. But what does he mean by holy? Uh, Holy, uh, the Hebrew word behind our English word for holy means weighty. In other words, the image is that compared to everything else, holy things have substance where everything else is inconsequential. Holy things matter. Holy things are important. Holy things are set apart and distinct from everything else. And so God is telling Moses, look, there's nothing wrong with your shoes. They're fine. You can wear them anywhere you want. But now that you are here, it's different because I'm different. So take off your shoes. Notice a couple of things about God's holiness. First of all, God's holiness has a purpose. It has a purpose. It's, It's a refining holiness. It purifies the people that it comes into contact with. Why does, why does God choose a burning bush to speak to Moses? Have you ever wondered that? That seems kind of random. Why a bush that's on fire, that even though it's on fire, it doesn't burn up, it doesn't get consumed? Well, the, the bush, the burning bush is an image that's meant to communicate a message to Moses. The bush represents the people of Israel. God often in the Bible uses plants to refer to as an image for his people, like a vine or an olive tree or or, uh, um, uh, other trees that he, a fig tree. And so uh, this is an an image of his people. But the bush is not a very attractive or welcome plant. It has thorns. It doesn't bear fruit. They were common. And so they weren't necessarily plants that you would want in your yard, for example, or on your patio here uh, in Bogota. They 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 were despised plants. And so he's saying, look, Israel right now in Egypt... You guys are lowly, you're despised, there's nothing good about you, you're not bearing fruit. 
and it's on fire. It's a bush that's on fire. Why is it on fire? Well, the fire represents God's holiness, God's uh, holy judgment, God's holy refining purpose, the judgment that will burn up his enemies but also purify his people. But notice that even though the bush is on fire, it's not being consumed. It's not burning it all the way to the ground. And so what is God saying? He's saying, my people are oppressed in Egypt. They're under my, uh, my, the hand of my discipline that is refining them, but I'm not giving them over to death. I'm not giving them up. And so the refining fire is meant to purify them, but not to kill them, not to eliminate them. And so God's holiness is, is like that. It is a refining holiness. It makes, turns people who come into contact with him into, into, into the holiness of God, the, 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 to share his holiness. But there's another aspect to his holiness that I want you to see. And that is that his holiness is traumatic. It's traumatic. What does Moses do when he hears the voice of God? It's not, so, it's not a casual encounter. He, he hides his face from God. He's afraid to look at God because God has said, don't come near. His holiness is traumatic for Moses. It's something that that strikes fear into his heart at some level. And friends, that's why it's essential for us to understand God's holiness if we're going to follow him. Because uh, God's holiness is, it's tempting to think sometimes that, well, God is really just kind of a bigger version of me. Uh, he li- must like the same things that I like. He must get mad about the same things that I get mad about. Uh, his vision of justice must be the same as my vision of justice. His vision of what's fair and good for my life must be the same as mine. Uh, wh- wh- his vision of love or his version of love is the same thing that I think of when I think of, uh, when I think of love. His view of right and wrong must be like mine. And it's tempting to think, well, God is just a more powerful version of me. But what God wants to communicate by his holiness, friends, is that he is not like us. That he is the creator and we are his creatures. And yes, we are made in his image and bear resemblance to him, but at the end of the day, he is not like us. And if at some level, we are not cautious to step into the presence of God, if at some level we are not somewhat afraid to come into his presence, Somewhat like Moses to think, I, I need to be careful because I'm coming into the presence of something that is holy and I am not. And we haven't understood the God of the Bible yet. We need to understand that he is a holy God. He is different from us. But there's something else about this holy God that we need to understand. And that is that we need to understand his purposes. This holy God doesn't just stand far off from us. He comes near and he has a plan. But what's his plan? In verses 7 through 12, he lays out his plans and his purposes for Israel as well as his plan and his purpose for Moses in that plan. So what does he intend to do? I want you to see two aspects of his purposes this morning. First, he intends to bring his people out of Egypt. That's clear, right? He says, I've seen their affliction. I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And so the first step in this plan is to relieve them of that suffering to relieve them of that oppression, to break the hold of Egypt over the people of Israel. And so to get them out of the bad situation that they're in. But there's another step in that plan. He doesn't stop with just taking them out of their bad situation. He says he is going to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. What does that mean? 
This description of the promised land that he has promised to, to give to his people is, a, is a, a common description he uses of it all the time. A land flowing with milk and honey. Why milk and honey? Well, milk and honey are signs of great abundance. If you have milk, you have lots of sheep and goats who have lots of grass to eat, and so they produce lots of milk. If you have lots of honey, then you have lots of flowers in your land that bees can go pollinate and create lots of honey. So it means that it's a land that is not dry and parched. It's, it's a land that is green and verdant and, and flowing with animals and the, and the a fruit of having those animals. And so it is a, a picture of abundance. God wants to bring his people not just out of Egypt and set them into the wilderness at Sinai, He wants to bring them into the land that he's promised, a land of abundance, a land of fullness. And that's important for us to know. Maybe you've had a friend that's told you before, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, he does. And that plan is to bring you out of slavery to sin and to deliver you into a land of abundance. And by a land of abundance, I don't mean, as, as some preachers and Christian authors will say, a land of material abundance. God's plan isn't to make you rich and famous. We know that because uh, even the people in the Old Testament who got to enter this land and to enjoy it for a little while, the author to the Hebrews in the New Testament says, even they didn't really enjoy the fullness of what God had in store for them. And so we know that even, th- just like the burning bush was an image, the land of Israel, the land flowing with milk and honey, is an image and, and supposed to point us forward to the real abundance, which is to be in God's presence and to be like God. We see that in verse 12. Uh, Moses, after God tells him he's going to send him to deliver his people, he says, who am I? You know, why are you going to send me? And God says, I'm going to give you a sign that's going to show that, your plan, that my plan has been successful with you. What's that sign? He says, the people of Israel are going to worship me on this mountain. They're going to worship me on this mountain. The people get to worship God as their reward long before they ever get to go into the promised land and enjoy milk and honey. And that's what he wants to do with you. He wants to deliver you out of the the sins that entangle you and to deliver you into abundance. But that abundance is an abundance of knowing him, of loving him, of being near to him. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, he puts it this way as he's applying the gospel to the church He says, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. And then he goes on to list all of these sins and and earthly things that he wants them to put to death. But he doesn't stop there. He says, put on, therefore, as God's chosen and beloved, Jesus. Put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility. And what what he means by that is that that, uh, what God wants for you is not only for you to stop doing the bad things that that entangle you, but to start doing the things that are are good and that are fruitful. For a long time, I thought that being a Christian meant just avoiding certain things in your life. Well, if I can avoid this and I can avoid this type of music or this type of of movies or this type of uh, attitudes or behaviors, then I'm good. Yes, that's part of it, but, but the other half is, there's another side of that coin. He wants you to grow positively into the graces that he has won for you in Jesus. Replacing criticism with praise. Replacing grumbling and complaining with thanksgiving. Replacing lust with purity. Replacing anger with patience. Replacing greed 
with generosity. Positive growth in godliness is his plan for your life. That's his purpose. And he wants to increase your desire to serve him and to be near him. But how does that happen? How does, a, how does unholy people like us get near to a holy God and enjoy those purposes that he has for our life? Well, there's a, there's a third thing you need to know. And that is that you need to know the name of God. You need to know the name of God. In verse 13, Moses anticipates a question that he'll get when he goes to the people of Israel. He tells God, what happens when I go and they say, okay, God sent you, what's his name? And that sounds like a weird question to us, but names in the Old Testament, and for ancient people for that matter, uh, were significant, more significant than our names today. Your name might be Jim or, or Sally, but those are, na- those are just sort of labels that our parents put on us. They don't really tell us much about who you are. But in the Old Testament, names mean a lot. They're significant. They tell you something about the thing that bears the name. And Moses knows that, and so it's Moses' way of telling me, or uh, Moses' way of asking, who are you? Tell me who you are. And so God tells Moses his name. I am who I am. May not be the name you're thinking of for your next child, right? It's a kind of a strange name. I am who I am. So what's going on here? Why, why is it, what is the significance of this name? It would have been pronounced, maybe uh, most people say today, Yahweh or Jehovah. In your English Bibles, it's capitalized L-O-R-D, Lord, in all caps. So, but what does it mean? What he's telling Moses is, I, I am the God who exists. I am the God who exists. The, the Hebrew name that he chose there is, has to do with the verb to be. And so he's saying, all of the gods of the nations do not exist, but I do. I am the one God who is. And so what God is doing here is he's making an, a claim of exclusivity. He's not saying, Moses, there are lots of gods that are going to come and they're going to offer you a job to go deliver people. And so pick me, please, because I'm the best one out there. No, he says, look, there's no one else. I am the one God who exists. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God, the only God who can deliver my people out of slavery. You have no other option but me. That's a shocking claim. It would have been as shocking in the ancient world as it, as it feels like today. What, there's only one option when it comes to God, to spirituality? And it becomes even more shocking as we read on in the Bible and we get to the New Testament. In John chapter 8, Jesus is talking with a group of religious leaders uh, and uh, they're accusing him of having a demon and uh, his response to them is, I, I don't have a demon. In fact, if anyone believes in me, he'll never die. And they're shocked and they say, well, what do you mean they'll never die? Are you telling me that you're greater than the prophets and greater than Abraham? Uh, they're all gone. They're all dead and gone. And, what, and you're saying that, you're, that, you, that you can give life, eternal life to people? And Jesus' response is, well, actually, Abraham looked forward to the day that I would be born. And Abraham knew me, and Abraham rejoiced at my day. 
of course, they're, they're really confused now because they said, wait a minute, you're not even 50 years old and you're telling me that you knew Abraham and that Abraham knew you? You know what Jesus said? He said, before Abraham even was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus takes this name that God gave to Moses and said, this is my name, and he says, that's my name too. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am the only God that exists. I am the only option that there is. I am that exclusive God. That's why he could say later in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's why the apostles could preach in their early sermons, there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus, because the name of Jesus is the name of God. And so if you want to to know how a holy God can, can be joined together in relationship with unholy people like us, you need to know the name of Jesus. Because the name of Jesus is the only name, calling on the name of Jesus, having faith in the person of Jesus is the only way that you can be made right with this holy God. Why, why is that a necessary part of the Christian faith? Why is it necessary to say that Jesus is the only name that can bring you salvation. I'll be honest, that's, the hard, that's one of the hardest parts of the Christian message to believe that, that Jesus is the only way, that Jesus is the exclusive, uh, Jesus is the, uh, is, the, is the only way back to God. It seems arrogant, it seems narrow-minded, it seems limiting, it seems to just fly in the face of everything that, that, we, that, we, uh, that our culture believes today. So why is that important? Why is that part of what is essential to Christianity. I want to give you two reasons as we close today. First reason why it's, it, it, you believe it, it's because it's true. <laughs> because it's true. It's, we don't believe it just because it, it works or because we're arrogant or because we're narrow-minded and we just want to be right. We believe it because it's true because Jesus uh, didn't just say, hey, you got to believe in me and just have a blind uh, trust in me. No, he said, if you, if you believe in me, you'll never die. And then he, and then he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead in history and, and appeared to hundreds of people and did something that was historically verifiable and said, hey, come check this out. If you want to know how to escape death, if you want to know how to, how to not be afraid of death anymore, come to the only one who has conquered death. Jesus is the only one who has come back from the dead. And so we believe it because it's true and it happened in human history. It's not something that we just uh, believe because we want to believe it. It happened in history. And so if that, if that claim is, a, is hard for you to hear, if that's like, I, I can't believe that Jesus is the only way, investigate the claims of the resurrection. It happened there in history. And he verified it. He made the claim and he made good on that claim. And so we believe it because it, it's true. But, but the second reason we believe it is because it's a sign of God's love for you. The exclusivity, the claim that Jesus is the only way is a sign of God's love for you. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed. He said, Father, if there's any other way for this to be done, if there's any other way that this can be accomplished, please take that way. And God responded, no, this is the only way for you to die for the sins of my people and to rise again. 
And because God knew that that was the only way, that's what he did. He did everything necessary to make you, an unholy person, right with him as a holy God. And because he loves you, he compels you to that one way, to the one way that works, to the one way that will make you right. And because he loves you, he wants to make it clear, to make it clear that there aren't a number of valid options. There's only one that can make you right with him. In early April of 1912, Charles uh, Lighttaller boarded the RMS Titanic in Belfast. He was the second officer on the ship, so the second in command. And on the night of April 14th, he finished his shift on the bridge and he went down to his cabin where he was going to go to bed for the night. And it's there that when he was in the cabin that he felt the ship hit the iceberg that would ultimately four hours later mean the demise of the ship. And so he put on his, uh, his overcoat and his uh, pants over his pajamas and he ran upstairs to see what was going on. And as you know, many people on the ship had lots of different ideas about what was going to happen over the next few hours. Uh, many people believe that this, this ship can't go down. I mean, this is the unsinkable ship, right? This, it's not going to go down. We're just going to sit back, we're going to have dinner, we're going to listen to music. Others believe, okay, well, maybe, but there's another ship coming that's going to take care of us. Everybody's going to be able to get off there. It's going to be fine. But Lightoller knew the truth. He'd seen the damage, and he knew that in a matter of hours that the ship was going to be at the bottom of the Atlantic. And so he got to work. And he, he was in charge of the lifeboats that were on the port side of the boat. And so he was compelling people to get on the lifeboats. No, there's no other option. It's going down. There's no other ship that's going to get us. And in fact, he pulled out an unloaded revolver at one point and said, get on the boats because this is the only option. If you want to live, here it is. Get on. Why was he doing that? Why was he so compelled to do that? Not because he was arrogant. <laughs> Not because he was narrow-minded and just really wanted people to go his way. No, because he knew that that was the only way to escape death. And so he compelled people by his love and because he knew the truth. Friends, God has communicated that truth to you. He's shown the way back to him in the person of Jesus. And he compels you to come and to put your trust in his name, in the name of Jesus and to be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing the truth to us. Lord, we are people who are not naturally inclined to the truth. We want to keep our eyes shielded. We want to uh, keep our head in the sand, but you love us too much to allow us to continue to do that. And you you show us the truth And you've revealed the way back to you. Lord, we pray that you would increase our trust in Jesus. That you would allow us to know you more. To know more of your holiness. To experience more of your holiness in our lives. To have your purpose worked out in our lives. To bring us out of the the sins that entangle us. And to bring us into the life of righteousness in Jesus. And most of all, Lord, we pray that your name would be on our lips. That your name would be on our hearts. That your name would would come out of us at all times because we love your name. And so, Lord, we pray that you would draw us near to you. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.